Hello and welcome to Amplify Archaeology Podcast. At this time of year, as the winter solstice approaches, many people think of Newgrange and its solstice alignment. Newgrange, if you don't know it, it's a World Heritage Site, a 5,000-year-old passage tomb on the banks of the River Boyne in County Meath in Ireland. And every year, people gather around the tomb in celebration, while the lucky few lottery winners get to go inside to experience a truly magical event. As when the skies are clear, a golden beam of sunlight travels up the ancient passageway to illuminate the chamber. Back in December 2020, a winter of COVID restriction and lockdown, all of those wonderful celebrations were cancelled. So I had the idea to try to tell the story of Newgrange and the experience of the solstice by interviewing some of the people who know the site best. We made a five-part mini-series, with each episode released in the days coming up to the solstice. They featured experts like Dr Jessica Smith, Professor Gabriel Cooney, Dr Robert Henze and Professor Marissa Sullivan, as well as Claire Tuffy, who has experienced 30 years of solstices at Newgrange in her work for the OPW. Newgrange is one of those rare places. It's a World Heritage Site, internationally famous, but it can still surprise you. For many Irish people, their first impression of this iconic monument might have been on a school tour, as described by Dr Jessica Smith. I can't remember the, the exact first visit, but I'd say it was definitely in primary school. So I'm I'm from Dublin, and I think the uh, the standard end of year school trip uh, for national school students was was Newgrange was up the east coast. So Newgrange, uh, Mellifont, um where else did we go? So it would have been yeah, it would have been in the eighties, late eighties, um, and. And again, kind of, I probably wouldn't appreciate it at the time, but knowing what I now know about the dates of the visitor centre and that sort of thing, it would have been pre-visitor centre. So we're talking that little wooden hut where, you know, you drive right up to the field <laughs> in front of Newgrange. Um, so very, very low tech, <laughs> simpler times. Um, and yeah, would, gosh, as a, I don't know, it's trying to pick apart, again, my, my current experiences I suppose are my more academic views on Newgrange versus that kind of childhood encounter um in some ways I think it's kind of similar it's a very imposing monument um very intimidating in other ways the sense of mystery um and and specialness and sacredness I think hasn't dimmed hasn't changed um I probably I probably thought it was fairly impenetrable in some ways and i I think I still do in lots of ways because it it's very much an icon, you know, it's kind of Newgrange, the, the legend, Newgrange, the myth. So in, in lots of ways that can be um, hard to, to dig down into. Um, but yeah, I would definitely would have been impressed by its um, size. But then as, you know, as a primary school student, probably a bit more interested in the lunch <laughs> the other day or, you know, the gift shop such as it was in the 1980s. So, yeah. The solstice alignment was first rediscovered in 1967 by the archaeologist Professor M.J. O'Kelly, who excavated the tomb. But today, you can enter a lottery to be one of the lucky few to experience it for yourself. And one person who has better experience than most of standing vigil inside the monument, 
both on cold, clear mornings as well as disappointingly cloudy ones, is Claire Tuffy, who has worked at Newgrange for more than 30 years. It's very hard to put into words. It's very moving. Um, even this morning now, I went to Newgrange for dawn because we had a film crew. And when we met on the road, myself and the film, the cameraman, we were both excited because it's a beautiful morning here in the Boyne Valley. But we both agreed that there's something very special to driving in the darkness towards the dawn. You know, this idea of anticipation and then to be at a special place for dawn. Now, I have been very privileged in that very often I'm the person who brings the group into the chamber and it never ceases to amaze me how emotional people get um, on, a, on, a, on a day that's promising you know where the sky is clear and it's looking good people are very excited and um, you know there's an awful lot of chatter in the in the in the chamber and anticipation and they um they, they, they're so busy talking that they forget to to just draw a breath. So you kind of have to calm everybody down and say, "We're never, you're never going to get this experience again. This is a privilege given to very few. You know, absorb it and enjoy it and take note of it because we don't allow cameras while the sun is in the chamber. So... We all have to be in a position to be able to describe what happened. You know, it's the first thing that people ask when you come out of the chamber, what was it like? And even as it's happening, you're trying to think, what is it like? So there is nothing like the, the feeling of that first sliver of light falling on the floor. You know, the sun rises at 8.54 on December 21st. But it's 8.58 before that first beam of light hits the chamber. And that four minutes waiting for the light seems endless. You know, you lose sense of, of the time passing. And you begin to doubt that it's actually going to happen because you can hear the people outside and you know they're enjoying themselves. And we're inside and we're kind of still waiting for what? And then when the light comes in, it's so much brighter than you think it's going to be. It moves across the floor so more, much more dramatically than you had imagined. But I think the thing that strikes everybody is how bright the chamber becomes and the people that you've waited with in the darkness for, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, they're all, you can see everybody and everybody's lit from underneath. So it's like as if they're all gathered around a fire. And once the initial excitement passes of the, the light is in, the light is here, the light is here. There's always that reflection then because you cannot come to Newgrange and wait for dawn without thinking about the people and all the dawns before you. You know, all those thousands of years ago, the people waiting there, but also your own family, you know, how the cycle of life goes on and how we're you know, all these winter solstices that have been and gone and experienced. So it's a time for reflection. It's a time to think particularly about, I suppose, the ancestors, our own ancestors and the people who built the monument. And it's also a time to 
celebrate, you know, like, I mean, we're always telling the stories about the marriage proposals and the dark and uh, the people who ask, can they sing? And the people who want to leave precious objects in the light as if it was going to, you know, like a blessing. The people who want to get down on their hands and knees to see if the light feels warm. With the idea that a bit of sunlight in a chamber at dawn in December would feel warm, but that's how bright it is. And then there's a, um, a, a bonding experience with the group. You know, people are so kind to one another that they have shared this experience with this elite group that they all part ways with, you know, after sunrise. Um, so it's a very moving experience. But after all these years, and I know I've said this on other occasions, and it sounds a bit selfish, but it's the dark mornings I prefer now, you know, when it, when it doesn't happen. Um, because I always think if I said to a group of 20 people, random strangers, come with me, and I'm going to ask you to spend uh, an hour in a dark room with me and with 20 strangers. And they'd all think I was gone daft. You know, like, I mean, you would. You'd say, what oh, cheap, what for, yeah. But anyway, um, so that's what we do. We invite 20, well, we have 10, 10 lottery winners plus a guest. So each person who wins a place at the lottery gets to bring a guest. Because I thought when we were organising the lottery that I'd like to have somebody to hold hands with in the dark and to share it with so that I could analyze it afterwards and go back over it. Remember the day we were at Newgrange. So we have, I suppose, 10 pairs and you're inviting them to stand in the darkness with you. They don't know they're going to be in for an hour, but they're, they're, they just go in and we stand and we all know on those dark, dull mornings, everybody knows it's not going to happen, you know, and they're, and they're disappointed, but they're still here. And there's kind of that sense of keeping vigil. And there's no none of that excitement that I have to calm on the sunny mornings. None of that. You know, it's all we're calm from the beginning. And we get very deep very quickly. You know, uh, there's something about be standing in the darkness that gives you a, almost a license to uh, talk. Intimate. There's an intimacy to it. Um, so somebody might say, I might start the talk by talking about the monument, describing the monument, or talking about how Professor O'Kelly was there on his own the first morning that the light shone in, or uh, some chat like that, something just to start the chat. And very quickly, we're a group, we're bonded in the darkness, and people are swapping stories and telling different things, and what it meant to them and how they got here and what their visit was like. And after an hour perhaps has passed and I say, we'll go out now because, you know, the time of sunrise will have passed and there's no chance of seeing the light. There's a hesitancy to go back out because we have developed this little group. And then when we turn on the lights, I make them all cover their eyes because the lights, the electric lights, looks it's like that alarm clock feeling, you know, when the alarm goes off and the light goes on and your eyes are all... So I make them all close their eyes until we get used to the light. And what always amazes me is that they're surprised that the room we're standing in is so small. 
because it seemed to grow as we stood there in the darkness. And then when the light goes on, you're kind of looking around as if to say, oh, is this where we are? You know, it's like a, it, they're transported. But it's no ordinary dark room. It's the chamber of Newgrange. So, of course, it's going to be an extraordinary experience. But I love those mornings. Today, while the solstice of Newgrange has become established as a communal gathering and celebration, in this clip, Professor Gabriel Cooney talks about what the experience of the solstice might have been like during the Neolithic period. You know, if you think back to the Neolithic, that a bit like today, I, I expect it was quite similar to that notion of people gathering around outside and then a small number of people being inside and coming back out and, and, and relaying this news, if you like, from the other side. Mm. And and of course, that was a, if you think about it, that was a very kind of political thing as well. And somebody who had the right noose could, you know, sway things depending on what they wanted to say in terms of that encounter with the other world. Yeah. Yeah. So I've no doubt that it was a socially charged moment as well, if you look nice. like in terms of that encounter between the inside world and the and the world outside, the people waiting outside to hear the news of maybe what was going to happen next. Or mm-hmm. and I remember, um, you know, something you don't think about, and and it's an entirely different social context. Mm-hmm. Whereas several years ago, I was privileged to be in Beijing, and um, the old city of Beijing is laid out on the winter and summer solstice, and uh, there's a key point in the city where the the, the emperor stood at the at the winter solstice and he sort of then kind of proclaimed what, what was likely to happen in the future so um very different but but you can see how in very different kinds of societies this connection between the cultural world and the natural world mm-hmm. and the cultural world in a sense being able to coordinate or maybe oversee the natural world is hugely important hugely significant i think and of course, ultimately, it's it's I think founded in that existential question of well, what happens next, yes. because that ultimately I think why these monuments were built to kind of be a place to hold the bones of the ancestors, to be a place where they could be remembered, where there is an explanation, a link with the other world, which just kind of explains why we're here. Yeah. yeah. Do, 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 does that make make sense? And, we, and we've come quite away from my initial experience as a student. Oh, no, that, but that's that's a, a really interesting way of thinking about it, isn't it? It's that um, the portent, I suppose. You wonder about the weight of the portent of whether the light shines or not, and what that meant for people if it didn't. You know, was that immediate uh, devastation for them, or do you think they would have took it as lightly, in a sense, as oh, oh well, never mind? You know, kind of like the the Groundhog Day thing in America, or how do you think they would have seen either, you know, the light not happening on that particular... I I think that's an important question. And um, I always think that, you know, the focus, our focus tends to be on the 21st of December as Solstice Day. But of course, I think for people who were living by and who had this kind of innate knowledge of the movement of the sun and the moon and the stars and the behavior of of the earth through the year, um, I think that it was the period around the solstice that was important. Okay. So I suspect it was much less likely that at, at least over one of those days, that that you know you wouldn't you would have had that kind of the sun coming in, and so that relief would have been there. And it's and it's very unusual, I think, at the moment for one you know for the sun not to appear at least in, over one of the days around the solstice. 
And I think this link with the, the this wider link with the land is 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 really important. Um, I remember again several for several years standing on the other side of the of the vine on mm-hmm. this morning and looking up towards Newgrange, and again observing really some some years really stunning light effects that that must have played you know that must have been important in the past as well. And one year seeing the sun and the moon in the sky at the same time. But probably the most striking was was that on several years observing, and in a way I think this may be an answer to your question as well, because it wasn't just about the sunshine itself, but it was about the light coming into the valley. And if you're standing on the other side of the river and looking up on those mornings of the solstice, the, 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 the light hits the top of the hill where Newgrange is first. And then comes slowly down the valley as if it's lighting up the land down towards the river. And and in a way, I think that's what this this was about as well. This notion that the land was being blessed, if you like, or being renewed. Uh, and again, between the junction between the bones of the ancestors inside, the sparkle of the the quartz, however it was displayed on the outside, whether it was a platform or a, a facade or whatever. The fact that people were continuing to bring quartz, probably, I think, right through the duration of the use of Newgrange. Mm-hmm. So adding their little bit, if you like, to the monument as well. All of those different elements coming together, if you like, mm-hmm. that made it such an important focus for for people at that time. And I think that that's really interesting, and especially considering it, you know, as a kind of five-day or multi-day event, because... It conjures up the opportunity then, in a sense, doesn't it, of people travelling from quite a distance and having ongoing festivals. Maybe there's a different yeah. activity every day kind of in terms of the ceremony and such with it culminating at a particular point. But it it's, uh, it certainly conjures the picture because New Grange did have a big significance, you can, didn't it, in terms of um, a broader sense beyond the Boyne Valley? Oh, yeah. And I suppose it's it's also I think important that we that we situate Newgrange, you know, in the context of the other mega monuments, Nowth and Newgrange, sorry, Nowth and um and Douth and then the smaller sites, because it's part of that wider complex. But I mean I think even going back to the you know, the materials that are made to to make are used to make those monuments, the the, the grey wacky mm-hmm. and now the it seems the most likely sources from Clare Head, you know, and, the, and the, the quartz potentially coming from Wicklow. I know there's some debate about that. The gabbro and the, and the granodiorite coming from, you know, at least North County Louth and into the Morn area. Um, so people are bringing those materials and in a way, and of course, bringing themselves. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I think undoubtedly it had that significance beyond the Boyne Valley and... Um, and I think you're right to refer to as well to people coming and gathering there at this time of year as as part as part of that process of, of if you like of initially of the construction of the monument, and then of the celebration of of what was going on, and and maybe also that sense of things continuing. You know that I I wonder was there ever a time when people decided New Range was finished, or, or you know that it, did that continuing involvement of people mean that it was always if you like changing, and certainly I think. Thinking about its subsequent history, you know, at the end of in the period after three thousand BC, we're we're inclined to see that as something radically different when the shift the focus shifts to outside to building these large outdoor enclosures in timber initially, and then eventually in our, in, in you know as as, a, as hinges. But 
but in some ways there's a there's a constant echo there as well in those back to what was there before and they tend to focus around you know the front end of Newgrange and to kind of echo the circularity of the monument and so there's a continuing link I think as well to that notion of Newgrange being important even after it's you know its formal construction ended I think that's a it's a really interesting thing to think about isn't it because you know Jessica um made this point in a previous podcast we did on passage tombs about you know we still attend cathedrals that were built in the medieval period centuries later you know and undoubtedly the there's difference with the way that the ceremonies and such are conducted but there's also continuity as well in some ways and you wonder was that a similar story with the with newgrange and and monuments like that yeah well i mean one of the i mean you know one of the interesting things about the, the recent a, a DNA work by Laura Casty and our colleagues that we, myself and Neil Carlin, talked about. Um, you know, we wouldn't agree with all the interpretations, but it is interesting that yeah. that the um, the ADNA of the individuals from passage tombs, passage tombs in general, including Newgrange, but mm-hmm. you know, if you think about passage tombs more broadly, uh, particularly the Carol Keel examples, that several of those individuals day to well after the monuments were built mm-hmm. but generally have the same genetic signature as the people from the passage tombs mm-hmm. suggesting this question about continuity even though at another level archaeologists would say culturally it's quite different mm-hmm. but it's, we're getting these interesting signals that there's a lot of continuity there as well in terms of the the genetics for me one of the most interesting aspects of newgrange part of course from its solstice alignment and the sheer scale of the endeavor is the wonderfully rich Neolithic artwork that you can find here etched in stone, both at Newgrange and Nowth and the other tombs of the Boyne Valley. And in this clip, Professor Marissa Sullivan digs a little bit deeper into the megalithic art and what it might all mean. Has, has the way that you think about the art kind of changed considerably over the years that you've been studying it? Or... Do you ever think that we'll get to understand the meanings behind some? Yeah, um, I suppose the, yes, of course, my way of thinking about it has changed. I mean, when I was a student, we learned about the art, essentially. And there were, I suppose you could say, two camps. One camp thought that the art represented faces of some kind, and that was really going out of date at the time. And then the other camp that was very strong at the time was a sort of a nihilistic one. We'll never understand what it means, so there's no point in wasting our time, you know? Um, And I suppose over the years then, since then, my own thinking about it has become far more nuanced and subtle, you know, in a sense, that it has grown in depth. And I realized that, of course, we can't understand the full meaning, but also, the language, the artwork is not like a sort of a code or a, or a, a language that you can simply translate. And everyone knows this, for example, if you're learning a foreign language, you have to learn the civilization in order to understand the language, really, to understand what's going on in the language. Well, it's the same with megalithic art that you could, of course, say, oh, well, that means this and this means that. But you're really telling more about yourself than you are about the civilization and what the art meant to them. So I really, what I find is that the more you study, you know, these passage tombs and the more you get to know the thinking of the people that were creating them, the more you actually come to appreciate what the art is about 
and the sort of subtle messages it carries, and it carries many subtle messages. So in terms of actually getting to the meaning, you can certainly get at meanings within the art, and there are very clearly messages being sent through the artwork. But it's not as if there is a simple Rosetta Stone that we could all crack, and, and I think that's the mistake that has often been made. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. And I think, you know, that idea that we bring ourselves, you know, we only look through the lenses that we can look through. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we bring perspectives, which are valuable as it happens, as yeah. long as we don't think that that's the truth and that's the only truth. You know? <laughs> yes, yeah. not, don't get too dogmatic about it. But yeah, it's absolutely. It's hard to get dogmatic about any sort of art interpretation, isn't it, really? Yeah, well, very true, you know. Yeah. And I suppose it's the same with, uh, you know, if you... Um, you know, try to even understand what's going on in the mind of someone like Van Gogh, who lived only 150 years ago, you know, or less, you know, that even that is difficult, you know, like what's going on in a person in the artwork, you know. So it, there's a lot more happening at a personal and a general society level within the artwork. And do you know, with, with your familiarity of Maglitica, and, and, you know, the, these tombs have as a phenomenon, if you like, have quite a long time span. Do you see that um, there are different motifs kind of coming and going almost out of fashion or that it's a different group's expression? Or do you see that there's consistency almost from when Megalithic art first appears all the way to the later phases of it? Yeah, I think there is there are changes, um, but not everywhere, you know. I think one of the difficulties we do have, because art is simply carved on stone, one of the difficulties is this issue of dating. You know, when was it applied? Was it applied over a period of a couple of centuries? Was it applied within a very short time? One thing that becomes very clear when you look at Newgrange is that you definitely have two phases of artwork at Newgrange. You have the original phase, which has the spirals and circles and, you know, the zigzags, the usual motifs we associate with passage to Mart. But then someone came along subsequently, and it's called pick dressing. Basically, they dressed the whole face of the stone. and But they didn't dress it um, in the sort of systematic way you would paint a wall. They dressed it differentially so that they didn't go all the way down to ground level, for example. And they didn't, you know, it was obviously someone standing within the tomb, so it doesn't go out of, of arm's reach, you know. Uh, also, it follows particular contours in the stone. You know, it's sculptural, in other words, or plastic. It's, it's treating the stone as something to be decorated. And the strange thing about that second layer of art at Newgrange is that it essentially pays very little attention to, what, to, the, previous, to the art that existed already, the geometric artwork except in one or two very specialized cases. Okay. So that's Newgrange. But then when you go to Nowth, um, it's different at Nowth. Okay. What's happening at Nowth, actually, is that obviously there's more artwork. When you come to Newgrange, I go back to Newgrange for a moment, along the curb at Newgrange, when you walk around the curb at Newgrange, you, three, you meet three highly decorated stones. The one at the entrance, uh, which is K1, as it's called, Curbstone 52 then directly across from it, and then Curbstone 67, three highly decorated curbstones. When you go to Nowth, you actually have uh, about 90 decorated stones, 
curb stones, and about 70 of them are pretty extensively decorated. Yes. So it's a different type of thing. But the second difference is that at Nowth, I described at Newgrange two layers of art. It's more difficult to pick that out at Nowth because what's happening at Nowth is you have the art evolving at Nowth. So whatever happened was developed at Nowth, and it's really the only place you can see that happening. That's very So it's a fascinating site. It is, because I think we tend to think about, you know, from the outside perspective, you tend to think about Newgrange and Nowth and Dowth as all being the same culture yeah. almost, this, built at the same time and all of this, and it becomes a very simplistic story, but there's a lot of nuance to it. Isn't there? there is, and the other thing about Nowth is that, I'm sorry for slipping away from Newgrange for a moment, is that you've things are far more complex at Nowth. So, for example... You have, it's called linear artwork at now. It's uh, inside in the tombs. There are these designs that they don't create geometric shapes so much. They tend to follow sort of shoulders on the stone, etc. And they're lines of artwork. And the only real parallel for them is to be found in Brittany. You know, so they're absorbing ideas from overseas in a way that Newgrange isn't, strangely enough. One thing, and this this might be a bit of an odd question, but one thing I often think of when I'm thinking of depictions on film of medieval, you know, Ireland or Britain or whatever it happens to be, it's always very uh, monochrome. It's always very yeah. black and white and burstone, and of course it wasn't during the medieval period. Yeah. Do you Absolutely. think that tombs like Newgrange with the rich layers of art, do you think they might have been coloured? I, it's possible, um, you know, it's possible. I think there's one thing to bear in mind with regard to the Irish sites, um, which is that they use, the type of stone that's used most commonly at Newgrange and Nowth, and also at Knock Road on County Kilkenny, is grey wacky, which is a green sandstone. And green sandstone, when we excavated, the artwork looks so bold in it, because... Um, the green interior of the stone has a rich, almost viridian colour. You know, it's very, very rich. And then the natural pattern of the stone where it's weathered, you know, is brownish. So that there was actually no need to paint it originally. Okay. Now, okay. Yeah, it, it was actually coloured automatically, so to speak. Now, that doesn't say it wasn't painted, but <clears throat> I think it's worth bearing in mind. Now, the strange thing is, under the influence of the Irish weather, that changes rather quickly, as you know, from the various sites yourself, Neil. Mm -hmm. You know that the, the art sort of fades then back in colour-wise into the stone itself. The scale of Newgrange and the sheer wonder of it, it means that it can sometimes be a little bit easy to overlook the actual people, the individuals, the communities who built and interacted with the monument throughout the Neolithic period and afterwards. And here, Dr. Jessica Smith spoke of what daily life for people in Neolithic Ireland might have been like. What was the landscape like? What did they eat? We can hear a little more now with Jessica. We, well, we get clues. We know, going, I suppose, going back to the, the domestic sphere, which is one I'm quite familiar with, we know that their, their domestic spaces are more than just uh, utilitarian spaces. So we know there's... Um, there's rituals and practices and, and superstition, if you want to call it that, in play. So, you know, special deposits like axe heads, for example, you know, placed at the bottom of post holes or at the bottom of slot trenches. So um, practices, I, I suppose, we that would be familiar 
to us today, maybe in the more vernacular building tradition, you know, the cottages and stuff, it's still, or until quite recently, it was quite a common practice, you know, people put lucky charms and things in walls and under floors and stuff. So their lives are um, suffused with, like today, you know, ritual beliefs, superstitions, practices, um, things that get them through. I suppose um, we also know, you know, that there the relationships with with animals, the animal world. Now, unfortunately, Ireland is in a kind of a on the back foot a bit that with our acidic soils, um, archaeological bone doesn't survive particularly well, unburned bone. So quite a lot of that decays and we only have kind of fragments and the odd assemblage where the preservation is OK. But looking at those, I suppose, fragments, we can tell, again, that their animals, for example, their cattle are much more than just a source of milk or source of meat. So they're, you know, they're depositing them in special ways. They're um, doing kind of weird things with, with the with the horns and with the tails and putting them in different places. So, yeah, so we know that these people, I guess, are tuned in to their environment in a way possibly that modern especially urban dwellers today probably don't register or recognize in the same way so i think there's a lot of symbolism there um, a lot of complex relationships um more deeply embedded with their natural world not wanting to split kind of nature and culture but you know more in tune i suppose with their environment um we know things uh, Diet, I suppose, um, milk seems to be really important um, from the early Neolithic onwards. So lots of kind of milk residues in the pots. Um, so it's something that kind of that stays kind of through prehistory, that, that dairy signal. Um, yes, yeah, to the crops, we have the types, some of the types of plants that they are uh, growing. Again, that's a preservation thing. Not, not all the evidence is going to hang about in the soil, but where we do find it, we can identify plants and things. So... Yeah, we're, we're, I think, getting there. Probably, I would say, maybe the, the, the biggest area on fully untapped or not fully tapped <laughs> at this point is um, what the landscape looked like, kind of the, the environment, um, especially around the area around the Boyne Valley. It's that, that kind of eastern triangle. It's very dry. There's not many pockets where you get kind of pollen and, and paleo-environmental evidence surviving. So kind of colouring in I suppose that landscape um this you know the amount of tree cover open land that sort of thing I think we could still piece together much more of that so for me I'm quite fascinated about how people and their animals in particular are moving through that landscape and the impact they're creating on that landscape you know do they have field systems for example like the ones we see over in Mayo in the Cajun fields, or is it something else entirely? Is it wood pasture, wood grazing? Um, yeah, so we know we know quite a bit. <laughs> um, and yeah, bone chemistry, you know, kind of isotope uh, values from kind of the, the human and animal bone, you can tell, broadly speaking, are they, do they have a terrestrial diet or more aquatic diet, you know, fish and stuff? Um, and hints about movement and mobility as well. So, you know, what what bedrock are they consuming their 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 plants, their 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 diet dietary products from? Are they moving off that bedrock into other areas of different parts of their lives? So stuff stuff like that. It's all it's all come together, and I think the next next few years will be really exciting. Actually, <laughs> although Newgrange was excavated back in the sixties and into the seventies, and it's been very well studied, 
even today our relationship with and understanding of the monument is evolving and changing. Newgrange had an incredibly long lifespan with lots of phases of use and in this clip Dr Robert Henze talks to me about those different phases and what he believes celebrations at Newgrange and other similar aligned monuments might have looked like during the Neolithic. I suppose I, I, I would uh, tend to agree with you know uh, Jessica's position that you know, all these sites have long biographies and it's, and it's very difficult with Newgrange actually to talk about last phase or first phase. Uh, in fact, my experience with uh, the passage tomb tradition generally is that all of these monuments are in motion and they're continually changing. Uh, you know, sometimes it may be, you know, clearly structural, other times it could be the activity of people going to the sites and, and how they react to them, how they use them. Um, but right up to the present day, um, you know, um, we can all think of lots of examples of, of, you know, sites that are sort of still being used or groups that still come to these places and so on. Um, so just as you, I, I find that question difficult. I find it very hard to pin pin down a start point or, or an end point. As I said, when I look at Newgrange, I think of the generations before. I think of the trial and error process gone into the monuments. I think of those extraordinary uh, grooves cut into the upper part of the capstones above the, the passage. And that... Uh, they allowed, you know, the archaeologists that were working with O'Kelly and O'Kelly himself were just stunned by these crews. And I stood above the passage. I got uh, access uh, to that. And they're so large, you could get a quite a sizable grapefruit and roll it down uh, some of those groups. They're incredibly deep. And they were designed, O'Kelly believed, to draw water away from the monument. from the uh, So it was, it's not coming down into the passage. Um, so somebody just doesn't do that, you know, randomly. Uh, that's testament to probably generations of experience of how these monuments worked, what are the weaknesses in the structures, how they fail. Um, you know, so they, they were constantly revisiting these monuments, even underneath Newgrange itself, there's this large turf mound, which is, we know very little about, you know, the latest, you know, work suggests it's larger than we thought, maybe up to about 50 meters. It would make it one of the largest monuments of this tradition, whatever is inside it, um, in the country. Um, so Newgrange is a little bit like a, 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 you know, one of those Russian dolls, you know, where there's a monument inside a monument. It's got that feeling to it. Um, and do you think that kind of reflects? Um, Different uh, is that an evolution of the same group of people essentially, or do you think that there could have been? You know, I'm always very drawn. To, there's a particular uh, tomb up in the Dublin mountains, Seahan, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've visited. And the reason I'm always very interested in Seahan is what you have at uh, essentially two large passage tombs, I believe, next to each other. One you can see the curb, and you can see the the chamber very, very clearly, it's completely missing its curve. And right next to it, you've got this giant curve. So I was always curious about that phenomenon and what that is 
telling us about the people at the time. Was that a case that essentially a second group of people came in almost, you know, defaced the older group's tomb, stole all of their building material to build their own one? Or is it for some reason the first tomb failed? Or it, It's that kind of idea of why these tombs often sit close to each other um, and, and what do we really know about uh, in terms of the the ideas that people had? So, for example, that earlier tomb that, or the turf mound that might be inside Newgrange, could that have been something that they were elaborating and celebrating by adding to and building on? Or was it a thing that was being subsumed almost by a new group and almost hidden in a sense? It's that kind of question. It's a very difficult question to answer, Neil, you know. Um, you do get a phenomenon just on that thing of two monuments beside each other. That's quite common in the passage tomb tradition, you know. And so there are kind of lines of argument around moieties and sort of uh, lineages and clans. And, you know, could, could that have been a kind of reasoning behind what was happening on a kind of societal or anthropological level? But I do think, and particularly, you know, even ourselves today, if we're very close to, uh, you know, uh, in time to something we we've more permission in a way to adjust it. Um, whereas I think, you know, you know, things that are very far away from us, we would like to put a glass case around them and not touch them to sort of museumify the landscape a little bit. Uh, but my impression is, you know, passage tomb communities over quite a long period were very readily cannibalizing uh, monuments uh, to create other monuments. Uh, people have used the term commonly used competitive construction um, and, you know, possibly different groups at different places in the country and so on. Um, so really what we get when we look at the big passage tomb complexes like Brunabogne, uh, Black Crew, Karakil, Karamore, each of them is, is palimpsests and um, I sometimes, you know, it's, it's, it's a little, little bit, bit like seeing a snapshot of a Christmas party at 3 a.m., you know. You might see sort of 45 people there, um, but you don't know how many people were at the party, um, you know, how many monuments there were, once were, you know. Um, you might see evidence, you know, uh, you know, plates or glasses of, oh, you know, there were more people here, you know, there were more monuments here at one time, there were more monuments at Brunabogne. There may have been people coming and going to the parties. They're destroyed monuments we will never see evidence of. Uh, you know, uh, there may have been many more at another time. So I see Brunabogne a little bit like that. Really, we're seeing a freeze frame at a point in time. And there's a whole storied history, not just in Newgrange itself, but in the whole complex, actually, uh, of changes over time. That's a very interesting way of looking at it. And, and speaking of changes all the time, I suppose... The the actual gatherings there during the solstice, and of course this year, you know, it, incredibly unfortunate year in, in many ways, in many respects, and, you know, with COVID, the, the celebration, the, the gathering of people around the tomb won't be happening this year. But what, when did that kind of, would you know when that tradition of people gathering around for the solstice? I know O'Kelly was the first person to kind of see it again. But when did people start getting drawn back in the kind of numbers that you see in recent years for the solstice? And what is it, do you think, that Newgrange, what is the hold that Newgrange has 
over us that undoubtedly there'll be thousands of people, including myself, tuning in to the to the webcast of it. What do you think it is in us today that is looking back at this ancient monument and, and feels some kind of special connection with it at this time of year? Yeah, it's a, again, another excellent question. You know, different people will have different answers to that question for themselves. Um, as to when it started, I'd say it started, you know, firstly, I'd say it started around 5,000 years ago. Um, that uh, more and more, I feel that these were huge gathering places, particularly when you look at all the, the uh, new monuments that have been found in the floodplain uh, at Newgrange. Uh, they were designed for uh, large groups, a lot of them it looks like. Uh, they were designed for procession. They were designed for choreography, how people move through the landscape. Um, more and more when you look at the isotope evidence from southern England, Durrington Walls, uh, the Orkney Islands, I think these places were, you know, uh, cult centres on a very large scale and I think people may have actually moved between these places. Uh, I think seasonal gatherings, feasting uh, would have been hugely important. And I think often when you look at sort of, you know, for instance, if people go on websites today about, you know, Newgrange and these sites, very often the pictures they'll see are, you know, a little light mist over the river, the first hints of sun coming up in the background. It's all very, um, you know, peaceful and, um, you know, uh, isolated and kind of peopleless landscapes. And I think in the past, the absolute opposite was the case. I think they were thronged uh, with a lot of people uh, coming from all over the region, possibly you know, all over the country and possibly from other countries also. Through his investigations of another passage tomb at Knock Row in County Kilkenny, Professor Marissa Sullivan was able to experience the modern-day community relationships with these monuments. And here he discusses how we interact with these special places today and how people might have interacted with them in the past. Newgrange isn't the only monument to have a solar alignment. No, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. You know, and... um, I suppose my local one is Dockerel, of course, which, yes. which you excavated yourself. And, and it, that was, I always felt that it was a wonderful way to mark the ending of the year, having the community all together there, you know, drinking the mulled wine and eating the mince pies, much as people did in Neolithic Island. <laughs> Absolutely. No, um, you're, you're, you're so right. <laughs> but do you think that the, the builders of the tomb and the late Nockerel are the various kind of people involved with Newgrange, because it has such a very long lifespan, Nocro too, do you think they kind of gathered together in that sort of almost celebration, reflective kind of an idea? Or do you think that there was something more religious and almost alien to us today in, in some ways? What When you're picturing the ceremonies that might have happened at a site like Nocro or a site like Newgrange, at the time, during the, the later yeah. phase of the monument. What are you imagining that people would do? I I think if I could pick up your point about the modern one, uh, first, uh, Neil, I think you're, up, you're right about that, that. When I first went to Knock Row, um, I began excavating there in 1990, and 
later on that same summer, I was asked to come down because the local community was celebrating mass at the site. And it turned out, I, I, I discovered that this had been a tradition, you know, locally for a while, that they went around to the different graveyards uh, and they included the site itself as one of the graveyards, uh, which was very interesting that they prayed for the people who were there. And I think that's a wonderful connection with the past. And then, as you say, the solstice uh, assemblies now are just such lovely occasions, as you say, I, I, you wouldn't miss them for the you know the life of you. And I think the same thing, probably of a similar nature, but obviously expressed in their own way, just like we express things in our own way. That uh, I think they would have. Ex- I, I could imagine um, assemblies there. I, I think there's no doubt. One of the things I like to imagine is that, of course, the landscape, the actual appearance with trees and crops and so on, and field boundaries, that's slightly different today. But the actual shape of the landscape is exactly as it would have been. And, you know, they still had green grass and so forth. And what I find interesting, I suppose, is in my own mind, like you say, trying to imagine these people arriving at the site. How did they arrive at the site? You know, Mm. where did they approach from? I I find that fascinating in my own mind, you know. Um, As we know, as you know, we have uh, the eastern tomb aligned to the rising sun on midwinter day and the western tomb aligned to the setting sun on midwinter day. So did they come from one of those directions when they were coming to the site? Did they cross the river, for example, you know? So even that, on that level, because at Newgrange it's very clear where the approach is because you have a circle around about of stones and the two, cur- the two standing stones in the, in the stone circle, not the curb stone, but the stone circle, the two standing stones in front of the entrance are actually red sandstone, whereas the other ones are uh, green sandstone. Uh, it was uh, uh, Steve Mandel, actually, that pointed that out to me, was a geologist. And the, so we know the direction, so to speak, the ceremonial direction coming up to Newgrange, and there's only one entrance, so to speak. More tricky with a place like Knock Row. But I do imagine that there would have been gatherings. Um, I, I think, you know, as you say yourself, Neil, it, it is a landscape that, you know, it lends itself to reflection almost, you know, when you're standing there. And it's an extraordinary sight to see the sun coming up in the morning and dropping down in the evening there, you know, in this lovely area. Um, but also, I think, maybe I'm wrong on this, I also like to think there were private visits to these places. And... Uh, by their very nature, as you know, most people that would be familiar with Newgrange and being able to go in groups of about 15 or 20 at a time, you know. But as you also know, Neil, that that's rare, actually. That's unique, in a sense, in Ireland, you know. But in general, in Ireland, only one or two people, or three or four maybe, could crawl into one of these passage tombs at a time. Some of the larger ones maybe... You know, I remember, for example, that um, La Croix, when you go up to Carantia at La Croix and you have a group of students or whatever with you, you've got to bring them in in groups of about eight or ten at the very most at a time into Carantia. And that's to stand without doing any ceremonies, so to speak. So I think very few people could have actually gone into the tombs. And uh, so when you're talking then about the communal gatherings, I'm thinking of people gathering but I'm also trying to think, were there people who had almost, you know, who were the people who went into the tombs and how did they prepare and what were the expectations of them and so forth and who presided over the whole thing? And we'll give the final word to Morris. 
as he gives his own first impressions of Newgrange and why Newgrange and other monuments like it are so important to us today. Well, when I first saw Newgrange, I was an undergraduate student and it's very difficult to recognise now that back then in the 1970s, this is the mid-70s, Newgrange wasn't as well known nationally as it is today. Um, in fact, I'm not sure I had even heard of Newgrange before I began my university studies. And as an undergraduate student, I went to see Newgrange and I found it, it's very hard to describe today almost or to imagine, to, you know, I, I thought about this, that I found it slightly alien, sort of a slightly bleak and cold place, you know, probably because it was midwinter or the middle of the winter or something. We didn't really know about the solstice at that stage. And um, it was only subsequently when I, first of all, I got to know people like Claire Tuffy, who was the, who was the manager today, and, and Michael J. O'Kelly, who was the excavator, and who was very kind to me at the time and brought me around on a personal tour, which I really appreciated. But also... As I got to know Newgrange and I realized that this was Brunabonia and it had this fantastic mythology around it. And I got to recognize that it was linked with the River Boyne, which has this huge depth of mythology behind it. And then I realized, well, Newgrange is older than that again. And in fact, the very foundations of Ireland, in a, in a way, are to be found at places like Newgrange and Cagey Fields and Tara, where you have the Mount of the Hostages, these Stone Age sites. Irish society, Irish civilization almost, springs ultimately from these places. And that's it for this special solstice episode of Amplify Archaeology. And don't forget to check out the original episodes if you want to dig deeper into the stories of Newgrange and the winter solstice. We've barely scratched the surface here of these incredible um, stories, really, that we can learn about that place. And this is our final episode of 2022, and I want to thank you all for joining us over the past year. We've got lots of brilliant interviewees already lined up for next year, so do make sure that you're subscribed. And if you're feeling generous, you want to give me a little present, leave us a review as well, as that helps us to be found. And if you're on a little hunt for a Christmas present for yourself, join our membership service tour. We've got lots of articles on fantastic archaeology sites to visit, exclusive itineraries, online courses, talks, events, all of that kind of good stuff. Everything that anyone who loves archaeology could wish for. You'll find it all on tua.ie, that's T-U-A-T-H-A. But in the meantime, I want to thank you again for listening. I wish you a super solstice and a very happy Christmas. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs>